0: Continuing on in our series in Leviticus, uh, chapter 5 is where we're going to be, so if you want to begin turning to chapter 5, you can. Uh, For those of you who may be visiting with us this morning, we uh, started right after the beginning of the new year, we started a series, uh, as one does, on the book of Leviticus, and we are walking through the entire book, and so we've just kind of been going line by line up until this point. And we're just continuing on with that this morning and uh, seeing the gospel according to the book of Leviticus because we do believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and training and correcting and and all of that good stuff. And so we believe that's even true of Leviticus. And uh, I'm not going to lie, it's been really fun. Uh, So we will go there just a minute. If you would, would you join me in prayer? Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Leviticus chapter 5, starting at verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of proper value in silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. It is a guilt offering. They must make restitution for what they have failed to do in regard to the holy things, pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value and give it all to the priest the priest will make atonement for them with a ram with the ram as a guilt offering and they will be forgiven if anyone sins and does what is forbidden in any of the lord's commands even though they do not know it they are guilty and will be held responsible they are to bring to the priest as a guilt offering a ram from the flock one without defect and of the proper value In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the wrong they have committed unintentionally, and they will be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. They have been guilty of wrongdoing against the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care, or about something stolen, or if they cheat their neighbor, or if they find lost property and lie about it, or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit. When they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found or whatever it was that they swore falsely about. They must make restitution in full, Add a fifth of the value to it and give it to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, their guilt offering a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. Okay. As we've been walking through the book of Leviticus, we've now seen five different types of sacrifices described. The very first one we looked at was the burnt offering. The second one was the grain offering. The third one was the fellowship offering. The last two weeks we've been looking at the sin offering. And then this week we get introduced to the guilt offering. Guilt offering is how it's referred to in our Bibles, the NIV, but in other translations it's often called the reparation offering. And on the surface, it looks like just like every other offerings. If you were reading through this book, you know, the book of Leviticus and the read through the Bible through a year, or for some crazy reason, you decided you wanted to read through the book of Leviticus, and you're just reading through, it does seem like these, these sacrifices are just repeating themselves, right? They describe differently, there's a burnt offering, but in large part, it looks just like. The grain offering, except it's an animal and not its grain, but it also looks like the sin offering, which also looks like the guilt offering. Like the differences between these are very minuscule. And so if you think back, I believe it was the second week of the sermon series, we had a a conversation about the role of ritual, right? And we just defined ritual as a series of activities done to achieve a particular goal. And we have rituals all throughout our days. We, we typically think of rituals in connection with some religious practice. It's, it's kind of how it's described. But you could say you have a ritual that you do every morning as you get ready. And it's to achieve the goal of getting out to work. And you have a ritual that helps you get to church. And it looks a little bit different because the day is structured differently. And the goal is different, right? We have all these rituals throughout our lives that are a series of activities done to achieve a goal. And if we want to understand what's happening, or what what was thought to be happening in these sacrifices a good thing to do is to look at the actual the the ritual itself those series of activities because they are done with an intended purpose it's going somewhere it's trying to achieve something and by stepping back and looking at the different steps and even those minute differences in the steps regarding the different offerings we can see how very distinguished they are from one another so, this morning, in order to do that, we've got to look at, there's really two, uh, two, ty- two, two th- th- this, this passage that we read, 5.14 to 6.7, is really can be broken into two different sections, with two, in, in each section, there's a broad category, but this first category has two types in there. So, the first category is the misuse of the Lord's property. The second, cat- or the second section here is the uh, misuse of another's property in connection with a misuse of the Lord's name. And the Lord's name being misused is implied in there with the swearing falsely, uh, but we'll describe that in just a little bit. So let's look at this first section, and this is chapter 5, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. Like I said, there's two types of misuses of God's property here. The first one is this idea that there are things that belong to God and that are used in connection with the worship of God and that one can unintentionally misuse those sacred artifacts and thereby sin, right? So what this could look like is you unintentionally eat a part of the animal that you were not supposed to. So remember, in like the fellowship offering in particular, there is a very detailed description of the way that the animal is supposed to be uh, cut up, for a lack of a better term. And there's all these different parts uh, that are supposed to be placed on the altar, and there's all these other parts that are set aside, and all of this. Like you unintentionally do that wrongly. A part that is supposed to go on the altar, that is supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, you eat. You now have sinned, and it, sma- it, it seems like a small deal, but this food has been has been sanctified in a, in a sort of way. It has been set aside as sacred, and now, even though it is intentional, you use that which is sacred in a common way, thereby desecrating it. So let me let me give you an example to try to tell you what this might look like. Imagine, and this is going to take a good amount of imagination, imagine I'm trying to fix something. And I've, I'm almost done fixing it. Like, I've figured it out, right? And the only thing is, is I need a washer. I need a washer to, to truly do this job well. I need a washer. And I cannot find a washer the right size in throughout the whole house. And for whatever reason, I'm not going to, probably because I'm Dutch, I'm not going to go to... Well, it's not the do-it center anymore, but I'm not going to go to whatever it is now and buy a single washer. And I look down at my hand, and I realize I've got this metal circular thing that'll do pretty much the same thing. So I slide it on there, put the bolt through it, tighten it down. We're good to go. And a little later, Sarah's like, hey, where's your wedding ring? I was like, oh, I know exactly where it is. She's like, yeah, but where is it? I was like, well, I was fixing something earlier, and I needed to use it as a washer. Like she's going to flip out on me, right? Like that is not going to be like, "Oh, that sounds good. What do you want for dinner?" Like this is going to be a point of conversation here in which I am going to be recipient of some very bad vibes. Why? Because I've used this thing, even though it's circular and metal just like a washer, even though it's got a hole in it just like a washer, even though it's doing the exact same thing that a washer is doing. There's a very big difference between a metal washer and my metal wedding ring. Is there not? One has been designated for a particular purpose. It's been set aside. It's, been, it's sacred in a sense, is it not? The washer is common. But now I've taken this thing that is embedded with all of this meaning and I've used it in a very common way. I've profaned my wedding ring. This is exactly what's going on here. Something that has been designated for God. Something that can be as common as a loaf of bread or a lampstand or some olive oil. These things, even though they are common, are blessed, are set aside, are consecrated in such a way that they now are sacred. They now are holy items. And when we use holy items in a way that is common, we profane them. So most often when we think of the word profane, we think of something that is evil, right? It's evil, it's awful, it's wicked. But here what we're talking about is simply something that was once holy is now being brought down to the common level. And we're going to talk more about this distinction of profane and holy in weeks to come because there's sort of like a spectrum that, that exists here. And things can move up and down the spectrum of profane and holy, or if you want to say, holy in common. We'll talk about that more later. But this is what's getting at here in in chapter 5. That there is something that belongs to God that has been consecrated, that has been deemed sacred, and now it is being misused because it is being used in a common way. And so when this happens, even if it happens unintentionally, the sinner must must account for their actions, and there has to be a reparation, a restitution must be paid. And the way that they do that is, first, whatever it is that they've misused must be replaced. And it doesn't just replace on a one-to-one thing. You have to replace it plus 20%. So you eat a loaf of bread, you replace that loaf of bread that was designated for the Lord, plus 20% could add 20% more bread or oftentimes it was used money, right? You'd pay some extra shekels to go for that. Then once you've made restitution, reparation for it, you would then take a ram and it must be a ram. You know, some of the other sacrifices, it could be a ram or it could be, you know, a pigeon or a dove or it could be a female or a male. This one had to be a male ram. And the reason is, is because it was one of the most costly animals to sacrifice. So we're paying a heavy price for misusing that which belongs to God. You offer the ram, and then you can be forgiven. You can be cleansed from your sin. This is the first category in this first section, or the first type, is when you unintentionally misuse something that belongs to the Lord, and it comes to your attention that you've done this. You make reparation for it. The second is a little bit odd. The second is, you unknowingly, which sounds like unintentional, but you unknowingly misuse something of the Lord's and you do not know that you did it. And you still don't know that you did it. But you offer a ram. Pretty obvious question is, if you don't know that you did it, how do you know that you have to offer a ram? Right? Right? This is something that ne- you never find out that you did this, but you still are guilty of doing it, so you have to offer rent. Like, it's a little bit convoluted here. But you've got to think in the mindset of somebody in the ancient Near East who saw there was very little distance between the human and the divine. And that the human impacted what was happening in our world to a very great degree. So one way in which you might say, I think I need to offer a ram because I've unintentionally, misu- unknowingly misused one of God's uh, sacred things, is by your conscience. So your conscience is just saying, I've done something. I know that I've done something. I'm not sure what it is that I've done. I didn't, I'm not sure when I did it, but there is something that I've done in terms of misusing what belongs to the Lord. Therefore, I'm going to offer a sacrifice. I'm going to offer a ram, and then my conscience will be eased. I can, I can rest because I know that I've done what is required of me to atone for what it is that I don't know that I did that I did. Right? The other way is circumstantial. Business deals keep falling through. There's this illness that just will not leave your household. There is relationships that keep breaking down. There's a lack of, like your crops aren't growing. Whatever it is, there's some circumstance in your life where it feels like God's blessings are being obstructed. They're not coming to you as they normally do. You're not experiencing the closeness of God. Your your, your life is kind of in shambles right now. There must be, this is the idea, there must be then something that I did that I don't know that I did. So I will go and I'll offer a ram to atone for that thing that I didn't do and hope then that God's blessings begin to flow towards me. All right? This is the second category here. Now, all of this has to do with misusing God's stuff, all right? Now, the second section, when we get into chapter 6, is a little bit different, and it's at first difficult to see how these two sections are related, because it seems like it only has to deal with people's property. Right, so you misuse your neighbor's property. Could be you stole it, you borrowed it, and you forgot to return it. Maybe you took it by mistake because you saw it laying there. She so just took it. Maybe it was uh, they entrusted something to you and you defrauded them of that. Right, but it doesn't just end there. What then? It says is, if you have done this and then you swear an oath falsely. Now this is key. And this gets to the point where God gets dragged into the equation. In the ancient Near East, if you wanted someone to tell the truth, you couldn't hook them up to a lie detector or pump them up with sodium thipentanol, truth serum, right? I'm not sure if it even really exists. I tried to figure that out this week. I spent a lot of time Googling if it actually works, which was kind of fun. There's questions, but we'll go with it because I've seen it in the movies, right? You can't pump them full of sodium pythent. I don't even know. I've done it. I said it right the first time. You can't pump them full of truth serum and get them to tell the truth. The way that you would get the truth from somebody is you would take them before the elders of the city or wherever you are and you would make that individual swear an oath on God's name. Right? So you see that that person there has a cow that sure looks a whole lot like yours. And you're missing a cow. So one plus one equals two. They stole your cow, but they're denying that it's your cow and they're saying it's yours. So you would bring them before the elders. They would then swear an oath on God's name that this is in fact their cow. And if they do that, sorry, it's their cow. Like that's your only recourse. If they say it's theirs after swearing on God's name, as far as anyone is concerned that is the truth and you're out a cow now what chapter 6 here these first few verses of chapter 6 are talking about is if a person does all this they steal your cow they're brought before the elders they swear on God's name that it's theirs they go away from that and they feel guilty they begin to feel remorse they know that they've lied They know it's not theirs and that it belongs to you. If in that moment, before they are caught in their lie, they come back to you, confess, pay restitution, here's your cow back, and here's 20%. Then they do that, and then they offer a ram, then they can be forgiven. If they get caught before any of this, then all bets are off. It has to be before they're apprehended and caught in their lie. Now, if you steal somebody's cow, I don't know why I keep using that example, but if you steal somebody's cow, I'm pretty sure you know you did it. Like, you don't just steal somebody's cow accidentally, right? You don't then get dragged before the elders and accidentally lie that you did this. All of this is very intentional. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that I said that in the Levitical system, there are no sacrifices that were able to deal with intentional sins. If we were reading through chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we even hear it here in chapter 6, you keep hearing this language of unintentional, unaware, unintentional, unaware. How do you steal something or defraud somebody, lie about it, and have it be unintentional? You, You can't. It's going to be intentional. So then how does this sacrifice work? How does this atone for one's sins? And the thinking here is that, again, if you do all of this before you are caught, and you confess, and you pay the reparations, you make restitution by returning what was lost plus 20%, you then move that sin from the category of an intentional sin down to an unintentional sin and therefore it can be atoned for with a sacrifice. Does that make sense? It's a little bit weird. Now, for me, this this helped me make sense of a passage in the New Testament that has always bothered me. So if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but as I was studying this week, uh, this story got reminded, it came into my memory, and I'm not sure that this is what's going on, but it sure seems like it. Now, chapter five, Acts 5, chapter, uh, starting in the first verse. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? what What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias this passage has always bothered me because it's after Jesus has died and resurrected and like grace is supposed to abound. And then all of a sudden you have this terrifying story of people who lie about selling a piece of property and how much they got for it. Like they sell it, right, and they get it, let's say, uh, $1,000 is a, a really bad piece of property. They sell it for $1,000 And they decide to keep 700, or they give 750 to the church. They look really generous, but they keep 250 for themselves, right? And because they lie about the selling price, they are killed by God. And it always has struck me like, man, that is just harsh. Where is the God who is so gracious? But what Leviticus helps me realize is that the sin is not what they held back. The sin is the fact that they lied to God. And because they lied, and they were caught in their lie, like that had to be dealt with. You see what happens in Leviticus six. What makes it such a. Uh, what makes it such a grave sin is the fact that the person lies using God's name. If you read through the passage, that's. The crux of it, the fact that they defrauded their, their neighbor and they took, this, took their stuff and stole from him, yes, that's bad, but the sacrifice is actually dealing with the misuse of God's name. It's lying, lying about God as a witness to their truth or what they're trying to pretend is the truth. This is the same thing that Ananias and Sapphira were doing, that they were lying, using God's name, using before God, that this is in fact what had happened. And as a result, it had to be dealt with. So in Leviticus, what it's saying is that before it ever gets to that point, before they're apprehended, if they feel remorse, then we can then, then they can come before God, but they must make restitution with their neighbor first. thinking the ritual, because the ritual is moving us towards the intended goal. Think about the order at work here. Let's start with what the primary sin that we're focusing on is, swearing an oath using God's name. It would seem then, if we were really going to be dealing with that, the first place of offering the first thing that must be dealt with is that sin but it's not the first thing that is dealt with is what was stolen which tells us something this is a reversal of the order and typically our priorities are God first God gets the best God is the highest priority, particularly in this case, because the wrong done against God's name is what we're primarily concerned about. And up until this point, the sacrificial system has been focused on God getting what belongs to God. But now, now we're being told that before you can even deal with the misuse of God's name, you've actually got to go and and restore what was stolen from your brother or your sister. That has to be dealt with first. The, the reversal of this order tells us that in matters of justice, particularly injustice between peoples, that people are taking priority over God according to God Himself. Like God says, when there is an injustice that is happening between you all, you need to deal with that first. Then come to me. That takes priority, which seems crazy. It seems crazy that God would say, this injustice between you has to come before the injustice that has happened between me and you. The sin between you and your brother has to be dealt with between the sin between you and me. That seems absolutely bonkers, and yet Jesus affirms that. Because in Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, If you are preparing to offer your gift on the altar and as you're standing there, you realize that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go and make amends or restitution with your brother or sister, then come back and then offer your sacrifice. Now think about where Jesus is when he's teaching this sermon. He's teaching it up in the northern region of Israel in Galilee, right? Primarily, we're guessing, to people who live in that region. And so if they're going to offer a sacrifice or a gift on the altar, that's going to be done down in Jerusalem in the southern portion of Israel. And the person is going to have to travel from Galilee down to Jerusalem, which takes about a week. So he is saying to the people, if you travel a week down to Jerusalem to offer a gift before the Lord on the altar, and as you're standing there, hand on the goat, knife in hand, ready to kill the goat, and you realize your brother or your sister back in Galilee has something against you, you leave the goat there, travel a week back home, make amends, do whatever you need to do to restore that relationship, then travel a week back, get back with your hand on the goat, then offer your sacrifice on the altar. That's how big of a deal it is that this injustice between us is dealt with before we come to God. In other words, our worship of God isn't just between us and God. But our worship of God is intimately connected with our relationships with one another. And if there is something in between us, if there is some wrong that we have done to another that we have failed to make amends for then God doesn't care about our sacrifice. Our worship is insincere. And this is what the prophets say over and over again. I could care less about your new moon festivals. I could care less about you celebrating the Sabbaths. I could care less about all the bulls that you bring me because you misuse the poor. Because you oppress people. Because you make money off the backs of others in inappropriate ways. I could care less about all that other stuff. You take care of that, then bring me your sacrifices. Our love of God is meant to be our heart, body, mind, and strength. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. With all your mind. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is equating these two. But I don't think he really even has to do this. He doesn't have to add that second part. Because if we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, I mean, yes, that means love God with all of your persona. But really, we could say that Jesus is saying love God with all of who you are, with all of your life, including your relationships. Which is probably why Jesus taught us to forgive to pray that we would forgive our debtors as we have been forgiven of our debts which is why Jesus says whatever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven and i think when we think about those couple of verses we often think of our responsibility and our responsibility as a people who offer forgiveness but i think it's just as i think it's just as true to think about it in the reverse not just as the people who uh, offer forgiveness, but as the people who ask for forgiveness. Whatever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven, but also whatever you ask for forgiveness for will be forgiven in heaven. Whatever you repent of on earth will be wiped away in heaven. Turn to me to Luke chapter 19. very very common story or well known story but we can see this very principle at work starting at the first verse Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy he wanted to see who Jesus was but because he was short he could not see over the crowd so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So when Jesus comes to the house of Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus in such a way that he's, his first response is, I will give away half of everything I own to the poor, and not only that, but I will... I'm going to double down on this reparation. I'm not just paying 20%. I'm going to pay back four times of anything that I have cheated people out of. He's living into this reparation offering principle. That there is now something between me and these people that I have cheated. And I must deal with that. And in response to Zacchaeus' act of repentance, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house now we could have a long debate and it would be a fun conversation about whether or not Zacchaeus's act of repentance here is what earns him salvation I don't I don't I mean that's a, that's a whole longer conversation I think it's always dangerous when we talk about earning our salvation but I will say that there is something about how we respond to the fa- to, to to God when the gospel is revealed to us Zacchaeus is a man who is standing face to face with the word made flesh. Zacchaeus is a man who is standing face to face with the reality of the gospel. This man who touches those things that are made unclean and makes them clean. This man who is not defiled by, evil, by profane things, but in fact heals profane things this this man who embodies healing and forgiveness and restoration this man when Zacchaeus comes into contact with him he has a response that says my life can no longer be lived the same and I must respond with repentance repentance is not simply asking for forgiveness repentance is not something that just happens between us and God but in response to the gospel in which we experience the forgiveness of God, our response often is to repair that which has been broken between us and others. I'm not going to try to reverse it and say if you repair things with others then you can come to God and it'll all be fixed or that somehow you're like don't don't get me wrong trying to re- t- to to reverse the order here what I'm saying though is that when we come into contact with the gospel the gospel leads us to repentance it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance and when we repent it is, a, it is not just a turning from of I will never do that again, but rather I will now join with God in his work to mend that which is broken, to put back together that which is wrong. God then uses our acts of confession, of repentance, of reparation, of trying to make amends to make something new in the world, to bring life where once there was death, to bring wholeness to where there was once Friction and faction and brokenness. This is what is happening. Our acts of, of repentance are a response to the grace that we've experienced. Our acts of repentance are a response to the grace that is extended to us by the God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. Our acts of repentance are a response to the grace that is extended to us before we were, are fully even, fully even aware that it has come towards us. Our acts of repentance are a grace as God uses them to do something new. And so let us be a people who are honest who are honest about the amends that we need to make. Let us be a people who are honest about the ways in which we have contributed to the breakdown of relationships. And let us not fear that That God is mad at us or that there's something that we've got to do to somehow earn right standing. That's already been accomplished. And so because of that, we now can forgive as we have been forgiven. And we can ask for forgiveness knowing that our forgiveness with God is not dependent upon whether or not this person forgives us. but, But is intimately connected to our willingness to ask for forgiveness. I mean, too often we try to keep that in. It's just me and Jesus. I don't have to go make amends with this person over here. All I've got to do is ask Jesus for forgiveness and then this thing is all going to be behind me. And I don't think that that's true repentance. I think that that's trying to soothe a guilty conscience. Repentance understands The deep impact of our sin to the degree that we say, I will ask for forgiveness from God, but more than that, I will do what is necessary to make this right. As much as it depends on me, I will seek to live at peace with everyone. And so let us be a people of repentance. For it's in repentance that we begin to see the new thing that God is doing. And continue to experience His grace and mercy in our lives. Let's pray. Father, pray that we would be a people who take sin so seriously that we do not buy into the myth of cheap grace we do not buy into the myth of a grace that is not costly I pray that we would not be a people who who fail to truly repent of the things that we have done in our lives and so, Lord, recognizing that you are a God who is gracious and abounding in love, we, we take some moment to begin the first steps of repentance by confessing to you all that we need to. And so in these few moments, hear our prayers. If any of the things that we have brought before you require us to go to another, I pray that we would we would go in humility. We would go with a contrite heart. And that we would do that we would act with repentance. We would seek to make amends to repair what has been broken as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which reconciles all things together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.